Let's pray. Father, we do ask that all of our days would bring glory to your name. That is our request now, that this hour would be an hour in which you are glorified. Father, that we would be edified as we look to our Lord and we see his priorities, we see his example. Lord, help us to receive your word this morning humbly and to be eager to change, eager to implement the principles and the priorities that we see in the life of our Lord Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Well, I invite you to turn in your Bibles with me to Mark chapter 1. Mark chapter 1, our focus this morning will be on verses 35 to 39. One of the simple things that amazes me about Jesus is that we never see him in a panic or in a hurry. Not once do we read of Jesus rushing anywhere. And that's, that's very different and foreign to us in our society. Uh, we all, I think, and maybe I should speak for myself, we seem, I seem, uh, to have a knack for maxing out our schedules, trying to squeeze 20 hours of activity into a 12-hour workday. And we go from one urgent matter to another, and we bounce around from um, emergency to emergency almost. And all the while, we're just sort of hoping to make it through Friday, right? Let me just get through this week. Uh, if it's me, let me just turn the corner on the weekend. And Monday, I can start fresh. And we sort of live that way, and we, we max ourselves out. And we often live a really um, unstable sort of lives, up and down, anxious, worried, fearful. But we never see that with Jesus. Regardless of the circumstances in Jesus' life, we never see him girding up his loins and rushing off to get somewhere. No, he was always on time. Right? Not your uh, estimate of being on time. He was on time according to his father's plan. Right? We never see him running, rushing. We never see him frazzled about life, about any event. We never see him, in short, getting pulled in to the chaos of life around him. And think about his life. He was not around the sharpest swords, right? Uh, his disciples were relatively dull. Mark makes a point of that. Uh, and he lived with them. Right? You thought it was hard living with your brothers and sisters. All right? Jesus lived, and, I mean, every day of his life, he was with a group of men who were very slow to, to understand Jesus and to see Jesus' priorities. Not only that, he was constantly around people that were sort of leeches, right? They were just pulling from him all the time. People just wanting to take from him all the time, right? They were like kids that only wanted to be your friend because you had the swimming pool in your backyard, right? This is the kind of people Jesus was around. And that in itself is taxing and enough to make you want to pull out your hair. Uh, but Jesus never was that way. Jesus was never frenzied, ne never uh, frazzled, never chaotic, never rushing around. He was a rock in the midst of a chaotic 
people. I mean, it, really, we could think of the passage we saw last week in Luke 8. Remember, Jesus is in the boat with his disciples. The storm comes. The boat itself is about to capsize. And where is Jesus? Literally asleep. That's <laughs> a microcosm of his life. Right? You guys are going nuts. Let me just rest and relax. Right? Now, how did he do that? And wouldn't you like to master that? Wouldn't you like to know the secret? Well, that's my hope this morning, is to share with you the secret to Jesus' stability. Well, you might say, well, that was easy for Jesus, because right, he was God. Right? God's pretty stable. <laughs> well, that's a good answer, and, and you're, there's an element in which you're right. But Jesus was also human. And the mystery of the Incarnation is that Jesus added to his divine nature a fully human nature, right? He added to his divinity a human nature. And Scripture says that, Hebrews 2.17, that Jesus was like us in every respect. He was like us, according to Hebrews 4.15, in all things as we are yet without sin. Okay? Translation, Jesus lived a truly human life. He had the same kind of people in his life that you have in your life. Maybe more so. Definitely more so. <laughs> All right? He lived with difficult people. Uh, he had to live with people who misunderstood him, who took advantage of him. He lived, in spite of all this, he lived constantly faithful to God. And while he was divine... He also was human. He never stopped being God. This is important. He never stopped being God in his life on earth. But his deity was veiled as a human. His deity was veiled. Meaning that he didn't make independent use of his divine attributes. Right? He veiled his deity. And so as a result, Jesus lived like you and I. All right. This is the way that he is able to make intercession for us because he identified completely with us. He was a man. He had to do things that men do. Now, most importantly of all of those things, we can, we can talk about eating, sleeping, resting. Uh, we could talk about all the human things that Jesus did to prove that he was a man. But here's the most important thing that Jesus did as a man. As a man, Jesus had to continually exercise faith and trust in the Father. Continually. This is Hebrews 2.13. Not only that, but he also had to bring himself underneath the Father's perfect will. You remember Gethsemane. What does Jesus say? Not my will but your will be done. All right? Jesus had to work to exercise faith and trust and energy in prayer in Gethsemane to bring himself under the mighty hand of God, as it were. Now, in doing this, in living as a man, Jesus serves as our perfect model. All right? He is our perfect model. He is the embodiment of faith and trust in God, and we are called to follow Him. 
Right? You were called to follow Jesus, to live as he lived. Let me just give you a couple of texts, okay? Mark 8, 34. Jesus told his disciples to follow him. Come behind him. Hebrews 12, 1. You know this passage. We're called to follow behind Jesus with our eyes fixed on him. Watch what he does. Do it. 1 Corinthians 11, 1. Paul says, Imitate me as I imitate Christ. 1 Peter 2, 21. I love this passage. It says that Jesus has left us an example. Especially in suffering is the context. But Jesus has left, left us an example that we should follow in his steps. Left us an example. The word is really interesting. It's, this, it's the word, the word example, was the word used to describe a student's grammar tablet in school. Right? They would have their grammar tablet, it was just like ours. It would have you know, the alphabet and it would be the rough outline of the alphabet, and the student would copy each letter. And as he copied, he would be learning how to write his letters. That is Jesus. We are to trace him, follow him, do what he did, and so become his disciples. This is what we see in Jesus. We see the perfect model the example for how we ought to live. One of the key themes of the Gospel of Mark is true, authentic discipleship. What it means to be his follower. And in our text this morning, Jesus lays out for us, well, Mark lays out for us by virtue of showing us Jesus' life, the priorities that Jesus modeled for his disciples. All right? Jesus had amazing stability in his life. Fixed, focused, stable. And the reason for that as a man was because he prioritized the right things. And number one on the list was the priority of prayer. Number two on the list, verses 36 to 39, was the priority of proclamation or preaching. Now, There is so much I want to say about the priority of prayer, and I think it's so vital for our Christian flourishing that we're going to turn this into two sermons. So this morning we'll look at verse 35. Next week we'll look at verses 36 to 39. This is just, it's so critical for your flourishing. And my hope, really, this morning is that you will see Jesus' priorities, specifically in prayer, and you'll be compelled to follow him in it. All right, that's my hope. So will you stand with me for the reading of God's word? Mark 1, 35 to 39. In the early morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went away to a secluded place and was praying there. Simon and his companion searched for him. They found him and said to him, Everyone is looking for you. And he said to them, Let us go somewhere else to the towns nearby, so that I may preach there also, for that is what I came for. And he went into their synagogues through all Galilee, preaching and casting out demons. You may be seated. The priorities of Jesus 
twofold. Prayer and proclamation. Prayer is first. Now, you should realize that verses 21 all the way through verse 39 is one day. That's important. All right, if you're going to understand the priority of prayer in the life of Jesus, you need to know that verses 21 to 39 describe a single day in Jesus' life. It's a sort of day in the life of Jesus. You'll remember that Jesus has called four disciples. Peter, Andrew, James, and John, simple fish, fishermen. And Jesus promised them if they followed him, he would make them into fishers of men. That's what Jesus does. He takes you where you are, and he turns you into what you're not. Right? He, he's doing it. We're all in that process. Jesus is at work in us to make us what he wants us to be. And the disciples are going to be transformed as they follow Jesus and as their eyes are fixed on him and they see him. We see them often ask, what sort of man is this? Right? And they follow him, they learn, and Jesus transforms them. Well, the first thing they do in our text after they're called is verse 21. They go to synagogue. This was standard fare for them. They were Jewish and would have attended synagogue every Sabbath of their lives. But these men uh, were about to experience a Sabbath, a synagogue, like never before. This would be a, a synagogue service for the books for them. And Jesus had asked, uh, had been asked rather to teach. He gets up, he opens the scroll, read the text, began to teach, and marked tells us that as Jesus opened his mouth, the people were utterly amazed. They had never heard anything like this before. Right? He didn't quote a single rabbi or confession to prove his point. He didn't even say, thus saith the Lord. He spoke with absolute, unprecedented authority. He read scripture directly. And then he explained its meaning. And he treated it as if it were truly God's word. And as a result, the people were all amazed. Now, if you have ever preached or taught, you, you know that this is somewhat exhausting work. Right? Usually you don't feel like running a marathon after you've preached or after you've taught. You sort of lay it all out there. You give it all you've got. And then at the end of it, you're just ready to relax. Take it easy. Well, not Jesus. You know, right? Jesus, he doesn't just preach a sermon in the synagogue. But his sermon is uh, punctuated with one of the most dramatic events that many of the people in the synagogue have ever even witnessed. All right, Jesus is preaching his sermon, and a man, just like imagine if it was here, stands up and starts screaming at Jesus at the top of his lungs. He's uncontrollable. He's yelling with all his energy, just screaming at Jesus, and all the people are looking and wondering, what is Jesus going to do? It's really a demon that's taken control of this man's vocal cords. And the demon recognizes that he is in the presence of Jesus. And because he does, he realizes that this is the Holy One of God. Unlike everyone else in the synagogue, this demon knows who Jesus is. And he knows that Jesus is the one, the Messiah, the conquering King, who has all authority to cast this demon into the depths of hell with a word. And so the demon is panicking. The demon is afraid. And so he's screaming and doing what you do when you're panicked. 
And you can really, if you imagine the scene, it would be extremely fearful. It would be terrifying for everyone involved. I mean, there are little kids in here. All right. I mean, this is like, this is a frightening ordeal. And at the end of all of it, I mean, at the end of the sermon at least, I think I would be thinking, all right, let's get out of here. All right, let's clock out. Let's call it a day. Uh, Jesus casts out the demon. The man convulses in the middle of the crowd. The demon is cast out. You've got to be thinking, these disciples are saying, okay, whew, let's, let's go home. And let's just rest. But that's not the way that it is for Jesus. The day for Jesus is really just beginning. He goes to Peter's house. Peter's mother-in-law is there. He heals her of her sickness. And by the time the disciples sort of get around and, and Peter's mother-in-law is healed and she serves them, by the time they sort of, sort of get to a place where they can rest, the sun is going down. And all of a sudden, a knock on the door comes. And verse 33 of chapter 1 says that the whole city was at Peter's door. That's the last thing you want, your flesh at least, wants at the end of a long day of giving and giving and giving, right? Is crowds of people. I mean, you don't even want your neighbor to come knock on the door sometimes, right? You just want to rest. You've served all day. You've, you've talked. You've ministered the word. You've, you've left it all on the field. And now there are more people, not just more people, but a whole city at your front door demanding your attention. What do you do? You lay there and you pretend you're asleep, right? <laughs> no, that's not what Jesus does. Amazingly, he doesn't run them off. He doesn't say, okay, that's enough for one day. No, he compassionately serves them all. And this probably goes late into the night. You've got at least 1,500 people probably. Healings and exorcisms, this is the kind of thing that would bring a man to exhaustion. And at some point, everybody in the crowd is taken care of, and the disciples and Jesus go back into the house. And again, if I'm the disciples, I'm saying, okay, it's past our bedtime, we stayed up late, that was a lot of hard work, let's sleep in in the morning, late breakfast, your mother-in-law's healed, she can cook for us, let's take, let's take it easy. And really, this was probably the craziest day of their lives. They just want some rest. I think they probably deserve some rest, really. But look at verse 35. What is Jesus' model for them? In the early morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went away to a secluded place and was praying there. What sort of man is this? It's interesting that in verse 35, the emphasis of the text is, is actually not on the fact that Jesus went to pray, but it's on the time that he went to pray. In the early morning, while it was still dark, Mark is wanting to make it very clear that exhausting full day of ministry, first thing for Jesus, is that he goes and he prays. That's the emphasis of the text. This was the time period. So in the early morning, it's a word that literally refers to the fourth watch of the night. Some of you have never seen the fourth watch of the night. <laughs> it was the time period between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m. 3 a.m. and 6 a.m. And the text says that it was in the earlier part of this watch. All right, so we're talking probably 4 or 4.30 a.m. 
And Jesus, the text says, gets up or he rose up. The implication there is that he was laying down. So he's probably sleeping, getting some rest, exhausted. But while the disciples and the crowds are still asleep, Jesus is able to leave without being noticed. And we know that because look at verse 36. Simon and his companions searched for him. All right, they wake up, they realize Jesus is gone, and they're panicked. The crowds are everywhere. The crowds are now back. They probably did sleep in, and now the crowds are back knocking on the door. We can't heal these people. Jesus, you need to heal them. They need you. Uh, You're the only one who can do this. Where did you go? Now is not the time, Jesus, for you to go away into the wilderness to pray. There's work to be done. And so they search for him. The, the language there is they hunt for him. They're looking for him. They can't find him. Now there's a strong contrast. They're panicked, frenzied, and Jesus is calm and stable. And this is the first occasion of many throughout the Gospel of Mark where Peter is identified, or Simon is identified as the leader of the group. All right, Simon and his companions. So Simon is leading the charge of the panic. And he's, he's the one taking charge. And we see that he does this throughout the gospel. Now, they're in Capernaum. This is where they are, Capernaum. If you think the Sea of Galilee, uh, they're on the northwest side, which I'm not going to reverse that for you, but the northwest side of the Sea of Galilee. It's a rocky, mountainous region. And Jesus essentially has two options. It says that he went to a secluded place. He could go up into the mountains or he could go down by the lake in order to have a place to be alone with God. Either way, the emphasis on the text is that Jesus gets up earlier than everyone else. Is probably the most exhausted in his purpose to be alone with God. This was actually perfectly normal for Jesus. This was not a, a unique, peculiar day for Jesus. This was really a day in the life for him. We see throughout the Gospels that Jesus routinely goes alone by himself, often early in the morning, to pray. Luke 5.16, I'm going to give you a, a list of these. Luke 5.16 says that Jesus would often slip away to the wilderness to pray. Sometimes he would do it during the day. He would send the crowds off so that he could go pray. Matthew 14.23 In the evenings, he would often go up to the mountains to pray alone. In Luke 6.12, we see that Jesus spent the whole night in prayer, the whole night in prayer, before he chose the twelve disciples. He prayed before he fed the multitude in John 6. He prayed with his disciples in the upper room right before he was betrayed by Judas. He prayed that his disciples would persevere in John 17. He prayed for his enemies, Luke 23. He prayed for the little children. It's amazing. He prayed for the little children. The disciples thought he was crazy for that. Send them away, Jesus. And Jesus says, no. To such as these belong the kingdom of God. It's amazing. Little children. If you are here this morning, Jesus prays for you, specifically. He does not despise your youth. It's amazing. Jesus prayed for little children. He prayed that his Father would be glorified on earth. He prayed in Matthew 6 that God's will would be done. He prayed for himself, John 12. He prayed prayers of thanksgiving. 
He prayed prayers to thank God for his goodness. He prayed in Gethsemane and when he cast his grief on the Father. And he prayed with his dying breath on the cross. Jesus was a man of prayer. By all accounts, Jesus was a man of prayer. He was constantly in prayer. His entire life was marked by it. And I want you to hear this, especially this morning. Jesus did not just pray merely as an example for us. It was not an artificial thing that he did so that we would follow him. No, prayer was absolutely essential for Jesus to succeed in his mission. It was a vital part of his life and obedience to the Father. We see clearly in Mark 1 that Mark is making the point that all the ministry that came that day incredible day in Capernaum, all the power that came for that ministry came from this habit of prayer. Now, of course, the power of the Holy Spirit from Mark 1, verse 12, we see that as well. But in Jesus, we see that the endurance for ministry flowed out of His communion with God through prayer. And Mark is making that crystal clear for us. Now, here's the question, all right? Here's the question that I want us to work through this morning. If Jesus derived his strength and his ability to do the Father's will by virtue of constant prayer, how much more ought you to be praying? Every Christian, Every follower of Christ must learn from Jesus to prioritize the discipline of private prayer. If Jesus needed prayer as frequently as he did, friend, you need it even more. All right? I need it even more. Jesus clearly prioritized prayer, and he is our great example. And really, His example ought to be enough to sort of rouse us to vigilant, faithful prayer, right? It should be enough. But I fear in my own heart that it's not. So what I want to do with you this morning is I want to walk you through probably too many points, but we'll we'll work through it together, of reasons why you ought to prioritize prayer. That's what I want to do. Jesus is our example, Mark 135. He's clearly our example. We ought to follow him. But in order to sort of pile on the the pyre here, I want to give you more reasons to prioritize prayer. And my hope is that you will see these reasons and be compelled to be even more faithful in your prayer life. All right, I'm going to give them to you one by one. First, and this is for really the unbeliever, you should prioritize prayer in your life because without prayer you will never be saved. Without prayer, you will never be saved. Prayer is the entry point into the Christian life. Until you pray, you will never know God. You'll never be forgiven of your debt. You'll never be pardoned. You'll never know what it means to be a child of God until you pray. It's not enough for you to come. It's not enough for you to hear. It's not enough for you to know right theology. It's not enough for you to be able to quote the Westminster Confession of Faith. 
The demons can do all of that. It's not enough. The only person who is forgiven of their sins and reconciled to God is the person who, based on the truths of the gospel, cries out to God in prayer for pardon. If you have not done that, you know nothing of Christ. You have no claim on Him. This is Romans 10, 13. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Not everyone who knows the right theology, everyone who says the right truths, everyone who memorizes the right creed, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That is the only one who will ever be saved. Have you done that? Have you called on Him? Have you come to Calvary Bible Church for years and years and years and heard all the truths and you know that He's the Lord, you know that He's the Creator, you know that He sent His Son to forgive and pardon, to die for your sins so that you could be pardoned. You know all that stuff. My question for you, from the little child to the the adult, is have you called out to Him in prayer? Have you asked Him for the forgiveness that He's promised to give all of those who ask for it? Have you called out to Him? Well, I would just encourage you, if you haven't prioritized prayer in this way, you need to do that. Call on Him while the time is still here. Ask Him to forgive you. And He promises to abundantly pardon. So, you should prioritize prayer because without prayer, you will never be saved. Now, you, your prayer, let me be clear, your prayer will not save you. God saves you, not your prayer. But without your prayer, you will not be saved. Your prayer does not save you, but without prayer, without crying out to God, you will never be saved. So pray because you need it. You need what God gives through prayer. Pardon. Forgiveness. Second, you should prioritize prayer because prayer, of all the spiritual disciplines, prayer is the litmus test of your true spiritual condition. Prayer is the litmus test. It's the test of your true spiritual condition. Here's what I mean. Paul says in Romans 8.15 that the mark of a child of God is that they have within them a spirit of adoption. And that spirit of adoption causes the true Christian to cry out to God in prayer. But specifically, they cry out saying, Abba, Father. That is what God implants in His people. This spirit, this spirit of adoption that can't help but cry out to God in prayer. The spirit of adoption is a spirit-wrought reality That God has made us His children. And when you become a child of God, friends, you want to cry out to Him. You can't help but call on Him. I I think I would say, and I've heard this said by other guys, so this is not original with me, but until you come to see God as a father, you've not really lived the Christian life. Until you look to God as Father, 
you don't really know God. The, the key to true Christian life, the key to true piety, true godliness, is understanding God as Father. This is what we see also in Galatians 4, 6, where Paul says, because, listen, listen closely, because you are sons, because you are sons, God has sent forth the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. The cry of the Christian's heart is a prayer to God the Father. This is the cry of every Christian, and it's the mark of godliness and true spiritual life. So let me ask you, do you pray? Do you cry out, Abba, Father? Abba is just a term of endearment. Do you cry out to God as your loving Father? Do you have the Spirit driving you to do this? If not, I would say your lack of prayer is clear proof that you are not yet a Christian. If you don't have that Spirit to call to God as Father, Romans 8.15, Galatians 4.6 would suggest that you are not a true Christian yet. One of the Puritans said, if you don't have prayer, you don't have Christ. You may have right doctrine, you may have great oratory skills, you may have power and influence over people, you may have a public platform, but if you do not pray, all of your theology is mere talk. Prayer is the pulse of true Christianity. Martin Lloyd-Jones captured it well when he wrote, Prayer is the highest activity of the human soul. And therefore, it is at the same time the ultimate test of a man's true spiritual condition. Do you pray? Do you pray? Friend, be careful that you're not deceiving yourself by public ministry, by public actions where people can see that. The true test of your godliness, the true test of your character, the true test of your um, sonship is your praying life. Right? Your prayer life does not justify you. Right? Faith justifies. But prayer is the pulse, the fruit. It's the cry of the Christian's life. Robert Murray McShane said, What a man is on his knees before God, that he is and nothing more. That is the measure of who you are, your spiritual maturity. So prayer is the test of your spiritual condition. So you should then prioritize prayer as a Christian, because it's the surest barometer of your spirituality. It's the litmus test of the state of your soul. Are you not praying? You should be concerned, right? You should be, there should be concerns there for you. And repentance would look like you starting to follow Christ's example, all right? All right, let me give you another reason to prioritize prayer. You should prioritize prayer because prayer is the way you advertise your dependence upon God. You should pray. You must pray. Because prayer is the way that you advertise your dependence on God. John 15, 5. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him He bears much fruit. 
For apart from me, you can do what? Nothing. Do you believe that? Do you believe that apart from Jesus, you can truly do nothing of any eternal significance? Do you believe that? Well, there's a test for you to see if you really do. And here's the test. How often do you pray? It's easy to say, it's easy to quote John 15, 5, apart from him we can do nothing. That's easy. That's easy to read it. It's easy to say we believe it. But the true test of your faith in that text is your constant prayer. If you can do nothing without him, then you would constantly be calling on him for help. Right? Prayer is the way you advertise to God your dependence upon him. It's the way you show him, I believe John 15.5. I believe it. And so I'm calling on you, God, because John 15.5 says, apart from you, I cannot do this thing that I really want to do for your glory. I need you. 1 Thessalonians 5.16 says that we are to pray without ceasing. Why? Because you unceasingly need God's help. That's why. You unceasingly need God's help. Now that doesn't mean that we only pray. We have other responsibilities that God has given us. But we have within us and we live with a constant attitude of dependence upon God. Spurgeon said that we should carry the command to pray without ceasing like a drawn sword in our hands. Meaning that we're always ready to pray. You know, at every moment, our sword is drawn. John MacArthur says this, that praying without ceasing has to do with a God consciousness. Right? It's a God consciousness. You live with this awareness that you are God's child, you are His servant, you need His help, and apart from Him you can do nothing, so you're constantly calling on Him for that help. The person who sees his real need will constantly advertise that need through prayer. So let me ask you, are you doing that? What are you advertising by your prayer life? Well, let me give you another reason. You should prioritize prayer. I told you I had a lot. You should do it. You should prioritize prayer because prayer is the way that you will gain spiritual strength. You want spiritual strength as a Christian? I do. Well, the way you get spiritual strength is through prayer. Now look at, I didn't write this text out, but turn to 1 Chronicles. I want you to see this in 1 Chronicles. 1 Chronicles 29. 1 Chronicles 29. I just want to show you that this is God's method for you getting strength is through prayer. All right, we see that modeled in Jesus, the strength that he needed for the ministry of the day. He went first thing in the morning to go pray, to draw strength from God and help for the ministry he had. But we see this all the way back in 1 Chronicles 29, verse 10. So David blessed the Lord in the sight of all the assembly. And David said, Blessed are you, O Lord God of Israel, our Father, forever and ever. 
Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. Indeed, everything that is in the heavens and the earth, yours is the dominion, O Lord. And you exalt yourself as head over all. Notice verse 12. Both riches and honor come from you, and you rule over all. In your hand is power and might, and it lies in your hand to make great and to strengthen everyone. It lies in God's hand for that. You can't white-knuckle this. You can't just work up within yourself the strength you need to do the ministry God's calling you to do in your home. You know that. You've tried that. It's exhausting. Both riches and honor come from Him, and His hand is power and might, and in His hand is the, the ability, and really we could say even the willingness, to make great and to give strength. Luke 21, Jesus says to His disciples, Keep on the alert at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are about to take place. Praying that you may have strength. He didn't say, just trust me, I'll take care of it. Just trust me, I'll take care of it. No. The strength that they needed to persevere was to come on the other side of prayer. Prayer, then strength. Prayer, then strength. What you need to be faithful often comes on the other side of prayer. If you neglect that, you will lack what you need. This is why Jesus, excuse me, Jesus called his disciples to pray for strength. All right. Let's keep going. Fifth. You should prioritize prayer because prayer is the way we fight sin and the devil. How are you doing in that battle? How are you doing in your fight against the flesh? Well, if you're not praying, I can guess that you're probably losing. In Ephesians 6, we know this passage, it's a famous passage. It's about the full armor of God. Paul calls the uh, Ephesians to put on the full armor of God, to take up the sword of the Spirit, the shield of faith, uh, to go to war against the powers of darkness. And he concludes it all off. It's amazing. The conclusion of it all is verse 18, where he says, with all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the Spirit. And with this in view, be on the alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints. Three different ways. Prayer, petition, and then petition again in one verse. The way you cap it all off in this fight against the world, the flesh, and the devil is vigilance in prayer. There are sins in your life that you're still fighting and have been fighting for years. And perhaps the reason for that is because you have not prayed for the strength to win the day. Now we know that God often withholds some things, but He calls us to be persistent and perseverance. And here in Ephesians 6, Without prayer, the armor, the, the sword, all of those things are, are essentially, you lack the strength to, to wield them. You need prayer. Prayer is the way we fight. Matthew 26, in the Garden of Gethsemane, 
the disciples, remember, they're supposed to be praying. But what do they do? They're sleeping. Has that ever happened to you? It's happened to me. They're supposed to be praying, but they fall asleep. And Jesus comes to them and he says, keep watching and praying. Keep watching. Keep doing it. Keep watching and praying that you may not enter into temptation. If you don't pray and you don't keep watching, you will enter into temptation. So the way you fight it, keep watching, keep praying. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. All right? This is Jesus' rule. You ought to prioritize prayer because without prayer, the flesh will beat you every moment. You will not win. J.C. Ryle, in his book, um, A Call to Prayer, said this, Praying and sinning will never live together in the same heart. Prayer will consume sin, or sin will choke out prayer. Praying and sinning will never live together in the same heart. Prayer will consume sin, or sin will choke out prayer. So if you want to be victorious over your sin, and I hope you do, prioritize prayer. Sixth, you should prioritize prayer because prayer is the most easily neglected discipline. If you don't prioritize it, it falls by the wayside. You know that's true. Bible reading is visibly productive. You can quote scripture. People know you're reading your Bible. Church attendance, we all know that you come. We're glad you come. Keep coming. We all know you're here. We know you fellowships. We want more of it. Uh, but prayer, prayer is invisible. I don't know what you did in the fourth watch of the night this morning from 3 to 6 a.m. Many of you were sleeping. I know some of you weren't. But many of us were. But God knows. God knows. God is the Father who sees in secret. The eyes of the Lord are in every place. Keeping watch on the evil and the good. And prayer is a discipline that's easily neglected. It's easy to just sweep it under the rug because no one knows. I can go, I can lead the Bible study, I can lead the small group, I can lead the, um, the conversation, I can share the gospel. I can do all of that without prayer. I can do that. And no one knows that I've neglected the most vital discipline of prayer. And because of that, we ought to take special pains to make sure that we preserve time for it. It's exactly what we see Jesus doing in Mark 1.35. Life is full, busy, exhausting. The easiest thing to do for Jesus would have been to cater to his flesh. He had every reason to do it, right? I mean, he, he has labored. He's given, he's given, he's given. Sleep in, Jesus. It's okay. Be a good steward of your body, Jesus. That's what we might say to him. And Jesus keeps his priorities right. He knows that he needs more than physical rest. He needs something that only prayer can give him. And if he skips it, he doesn't have what he needs. Now the disciples are the opposite. They come to Jesus and are essentially saying, Jesus, we don't have time for what you're doing right now. We've looked all over for you. And what are you doing? You know everyone's coming to see you. You know they want... Uh, they want to see you. We, you know that we can't heal them. Everyone is looking for you. Everyone needs you. 
You can't just run off like this. All right, let's set this straight, Jesus. You can't do this kind of stuff. All right, the disciples are in a frenzy. And what, what are they prioritizing? What are the disciples prioritizing? Public, visible ministry. You see that? It's all about the crowd. It's all about everyone seeing me. Who have they lost sight of? I would say the Father's eye. They, they are not functioning with the same priority of Jesus. They're looking at the eye of man. They're looking at what everyone's going to think about me. They're not living quorum Deo, before the face of God in this moment. They don't understand that the public ministry that they've just seen in verses 21 to 39, all of that was fueled by Jesus' private prayer life. They don't get it. And Jesus now is modeling for them priorities. And they will eventually get it, right? You remember, they finally get it. In Acts 1, where do we find them? What are they doing? (laughs) They're praying. They finally learn. Okay, we need his help. We need the strength that we can only get from prayer. And I will just say, you should prioritize prayer because your public service, your ministry to the church, your ministry to your family, your, your disciplining your children consistently, all of that will be fueled by your private prayer life. Prayer is not a throwaway hour or throwaway 30 minutes, whatever you want to do. That's not a throwaway. That is an investment. That is, that is the engine from which you will operate and minister and serve. So you need to prioritize prayer because if you don't, everything else will win the day. Everything else will take priority. You'll get pulled into the vortex of everyone else's chaos and you will neglect the most important of disciplines. If prayer is the pulse of Christianity, you cannot afford to neglect it. Let me give you a seventh reason. All right, we'll move quickly. Seventh reason. You should pray. You should prioritize prayer because prayer was purchased at the highest cost. It was purchased at the highest cost. Without Jesus' substitutionary death, you could never pray. Without his life, death, resurrection on your behalf, you could never enter into the presence of a holy God physically or spiritually in prayer. Yet Jesus, by his death, the cost to open the way for us to pray was the blood of Christ. Listen to Hebrews 10. Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, the holy place has been opened by the blood of Jesus by a new and living way which he inaugurated for us through the veil, that is, his flesh. Since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith. Jesus paid the ultimate price for you to offer that breath of prayer. Without that death, the way would be shut. Such a gift, if neglected, is a great tragedy, right? We don't want to throw away what Jesus purchased with such precious blood. So pray 
Because Jesus paid the ultimate price so that you could. Don't waste it. Let me give you another reason. Prayer is the means by which you attain blessing in this life. Listen to Jesus, Matthew 7, verses 7 to 11. Ask, and I might give it. No. Ask, and it will be given to you, child of God. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. Let me read you another one, John 14. Whatever you ask in my name, that will I do. (laughs) It's amazing. Whatever you ask in my name, that will I do, says Jesus. So that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything, he goes on, in my name, I will do it. (laughs) I mean, that's a blank check. Now, of course, we know that God often withholds things from us that are wise. God promises to answer his prayer, our prayers, in his way. Matthew 21, 22. All things you ask in prayer, believing, you will receive. I mean, talk about an encouragement to prayer. God says, whatever you need, I'll give it to you. But you have to ask. It will come on the other side of your prayer. That's my decree. That's how I've ordained it. The means by which you will receive your strength and your help to do that hard ministry, and I know that so many of you have that right now. The means by which you will will have the strength to do it will come on the other side of prayer. Don't neglect it. All of the blessings, your joy, your happiness, all of that will come to you through prayer. Jesus said we ought always to pray. And not lose heart. Don't give up. He may not answer it immediately. But you keep knocking, right? And he promises to give. In his time and his way. Why would you neglect that? If Bill Gates said, whatever you need, just call me, I'll give it to you. Okay, my mortgage is this. Hey, Bill. You would do it. Maybe hesitantly. But you would do it. God owns the cattle on a thousand hills. It's all His. Call out to me, and I'll give it to you. Well, let me give you a last reason. I'm telling you, I could really go on. But let me give you the last reason here why you ought to prioritize prayer. You should prioritize prayer because prayer is the way to stabilize your life. You feel like you're in flux, you feel like your life is chaotic. It's a mess. Well, what's your prayer life like? I'm telling you, if you pray and prioritize prayer like Jesus did, you will find renewed stability, renewed strength. You will be a rock in a sea of chaos if you consistently call on the Lord for help and strength. Maybe the, this truth is, is nowhere captured Better than Philippians chapter 4. Philippians chapter 4, beginning in verse 6. Just listen. Be anxious for nothing. Stop panicking. Stop worrying about the future. Don't do that. Okay, what do we do? 
in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. He's given you the door, the wide open door. Jesus has paid for the entry with his own blood. This is the passport. It will never be um, dismissed. It's, it's always there for you. Here it is. Make your requests known to him. Stop worrying about it. Pray. Ask him. And then look at verse 7. In the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. You want that kind of peace? That kind of stability? I want you to have that, and I want it too. The way we get it is by following Christ in doing what Jesus did. What did he do? He went away to pray. He, he did this. This is where Paul is getting this from. Don't worry. Don't bow to the demands of everyone around you. Don't be in a panic. Don't be in a frenzy. Don't be anxious about your life. Pray. And when you do, when you prioritize prayer, you will find that you have the peace of God which surpasses all understanding. You can be like Jesus. You can look at these crazy people around you and say, hey, don't you know the Father is in charge? Don't you know I must be about my Father's business? Well, let me conclude with a word from Philippians 3. Maybe this is a fitting word for us. The last thing I would want you to do uh, is to think, wow, Randy, thanks for encouraging me this morning. You know, everyone, it's easy uh, to teach on prayer and sort of beat up the sheep, as it were. And I don't want to do that. I want you to be compelled to pray. I want you to see Jesus praying and say, I can do that. I have the Spirit within me, Romans 8, that sets me free to do that. I can do that, and with God's help, I will do that. None of us have arrived, and let me tell you, I've not arrived at all. But I hope, with God's help, to take Paul's words in Philippians 3 to heart. Philippians 3, verse 12. Not that I have already obtained it, or have already become perfect. I've not yet got it completely down. But I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ. Verse 14, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Brothers and sisters, none of us pray like we ought. None of us. But with God's help, let's be the kind of people who see Jesus go away to a secluded place to pray and do likewise. And find all the rich blessings that only come to us on the other side of prayer. Let's pray. Father, we praise you for your goodness. Lord, we praise you that we can pray. Lord, what a blessing. Help us not neglect it. Help us to be men and women. Help us to be a church of prayer. And Lord, I pray, if there is one here today who has heard the truth of the gospel assents to these things, but has yet to cry out to you, Lord, would you give them strength? Lord, that they might cry out to you and find you to be the merciful, gracious God that we have all found you to be. And Lord, may your glory continue to redound at Calvary Bible Church and help us all to be men and women of prayer. Amen.